Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The Bible talks a lot about money. Can you give me a guess on how many verses the Bible mentions money? 3,200. Very close. You have some numbers inverted. 2,300. 2,300 verses on money, wealth, and possessions. Jesus spoke about money in roughly how much percent of his preaching? Close. 15%. We're going to have to have somebody else answer. You two. You just dominate all the time. Just calm down here. (laughs) 11 out of the 39 parables talked about money, possessions, and belongings. Paul wrote about supporting those who preached the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9, and at the request of someone who wrote him collections for the saints in 1 Corinthians 16. He followed that up with the second letter, where we have two out of the 13 chapters. Can anybody guess what percentage it is? 15%. Wow. Yep, in addition to other passages as well. Now, as we begin, as we talk about our topic today, which is letter to troubled churches on giving, uh, I'd like to clarify a few things. First, at FBC, we're very careful to keep money matters private. What people donate is known to very, very few people. Uh, The leadership does not know who gives or how much they give. Number two, we are thankful uh, for the examples of generosity that we have seen and some of us have experienced here at FBC. When a need arises and becomes public, um, there's a good response by the saints at FBC. For this we are thankful and we praise God. Number three, we do not talk about money often. We talk about it when it's in the text. Uh, And when we do, we do not do it to browbeat anyone or bring sensitive souls additional grief. There are some people who love Christ and are very tender-hearted, and they think that every time their passage is talked about, it's talking about them. And they give themselves unnecessary qualms of conscience. That's not my purpose today. My purpose today And our purpose together as we study Paul's letter to the Corinthians is to examine what he says on this topic because it was a matter of concern. And then to reflect on how it is a concern for us today, personally, corporate, as a church, and in our largest society. So, that being said, why do people today not give money for their local fellowship? Why? What reasons? Why would people not give money to the local church, the church that they're a part of, the church they go to a regular day? They don't think they can afford it. They don't think they can afford it. They don't agree with where the money's going. What else? Yes. Say it again. Priorities in different places. Yes. All right. There are a number of reasons, some sound, some not so sound. But one key reason is this. They don't believe. You have people at the local church and people not involved in the churches who are not Christians. And as such, they are not convicted to do so. Interestingly, you know that religious giving has gone down about 50% since 1990. And again, when I talk about these things, I'm referring to 25 separate studies 
and researches that were done, not talking particularly about FBC. All right, so I need to make that clear. Is this Christian religions. Christian religions, right. And on the average, this is interesting, Christians in the U.S. give 2.5% of their income to churches. During the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%. By the way, if you ever look at my sources, you'll see where I'm getting these data, and you can look that up yourself to verify. They also give because they don't know why they should. They may not be taught about the commands, the examples, the blessings of biblical giving. People may also be in transition. They may be going from one job to another or transitioning in life. They also may be in a difficult financial season. There are different times of life. And they may be having a hard time trusting God to provide for them if they have a practice of regular giving. How many of you can say, over the years, you have found it easier at one time or another to give, or there were times when you felt constrained to not give, or to not give as much? I think if we're honest, every, almost every single one of us would go through. The greatest generation, those who were born 1990, uh, 1900 to 1927, the silent generation from 28 to 45, and the boomers make up... 78.8% of total church giving. 78.8%. Now, as the church eventually faces the loss of those generations, they can be in a precarious situation. Now, I will talk about and refer to these demographics, not again to shame people in a particular group. There are lots of people who make fun of millennials all the time. That's not my purpose here. And you may be outside of that particular niche. So again, don't take this personally. This is a result of a survey that's broad, that's covering a large number of people. Boomers make up 41% of the total population and 30% of the U.S. population. So again, they make 41.6% of donor population, 30% of U.S. population. Gen X, those who are born between 65 and 80, 19% of all donors and account for 26.6% of the population. You see where we're going here? We're going downhill. Millennials, those generally described Gen, Gen Y millennials born between 81 and 2002, 2006, 7.1% of donors and 30.1% percent of the population of the U.S. So you have the largest population here in that age group, that age category, making the smallest amount of donors. Now again, as I said before, people who are just starting out, income level is lower, they may have debts, and so the giving may be appropriate. Empty nesters have greater amount of income, so that's there's, there's some reasonability there. It's reasonableness. All right? Now, if you look at another reason, <clears throat> there may be a reason that people don't know how to donate. Some people have basic financial illiteracy. I don't do the books in our house. Kim does them. My job is to go out, kill the dinosaur, and drag it in. That's my job. 
Her job, yes, I do it. I try to do it as well as I can. <laughs> Her job is to manage our finances, and she does a very good job, for which I'm thankful. All right? But we may need to help those who don't know how to budget, how to take care of their finances, how to avoid debt. Also, there's a reason that people don't donate because they have too much debt. Let me see. Is there? Ah, oh, they don't know how. Don't know how to donate. Budget give. All right. They may have too much debt. Total personal debt in the U.S. in 2018 was 13 trillion dollars. 13 trillion dollars. Take hundred dollar bills. Stack them up. Put them on pallets. You would not be able to fit any chairs in this worship center. Okay? The floor space would be taken by that much money. Thirteen trillion dollars. Pretty steep. And that, again, age group, look at that. Look at this age group. Under 35, the average debt U.S., 67400 for people under 35. 35 to 44 goes up to 133k. 45 to 54, 134.6. 55 to 64, 108,300. See how it's dropping? Remember what we talked about? Empty nesters tend to have more liquidity, the greater ability to you know, have discretionary income. 65 to 74, only $66,000 in debt. And 75 and up, 34,500, which to me seems like a lot at that age. <clears throat> So, yes. No, no, here's, it's, that's, that's total debt. Credit card debt, here we go with credit card debt. The average credit card debt in the U.S. is $6,354. The average. State of Indiana, it's only, only $5,581. Student loans are incredible. Second largest category of debt in the U.S. Second largest category of debt. In 2019, total student loan debt is approximately 1.53 trillion and growing. In 2018, total student loan debt grew by 79 billion. And in the first quarter of this year, the number rose by 29 billion. So let's take that 29, multiply it by 4, and you get what? Just under 130K, right? 120K? 120 billion, I'm sorry, not K, billion. Growing faster than last year. The, it takes 19.7 years for the average four-year college degree debt owner to pay off their debt. Almost 20 years to be saddled with that. One out of every four Americans have student loan debt. 44.7 million people. The average student loan debt amount is $37,172. The average student loan payment is $393 per month. And some of you are out there and you're shaking your head yes because you know what that's like.
the number of people that are aged 60 and above with student loan debt quadrupled over the last decade. Over 60. Another reason people don't give, they don't trust church leadership. And that's one of the problems that Paul had with the church at Corinth. So, you have to remember that the church of Corinth, Christians may have been under persecution, like the people in Jerusalem who had lost homes, incomes, family members, there was a famine in Jerusalem and people were hard pressed to meet their daily needs. And the Corinthians had desires and plans and expenses of their own. So we're going to be looking at 11 principles of giving and they all begin with the letter P. I told my wife that and she said, perfect. Profound. Thank you, Derek. <laughs> purpose gracious. Uh, <clears throat> the purpose. What is the purpose? Why does Paul talk about giving and why should I give to the local church? Why? Well, I'm sorry, sister. Because the Lord commanded it. Now, Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 16, <clears throat> and turn there if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 16. He says, now concerning. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul addresses one of the concerns covered in a previous letter addressed to him. It's also part of his apostolic calling. The Galatians 2.10 passage says this. They, the apostles of Jerusalem, only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do also. Paul addresses collection which had been highly socialized among the churches for the benefit of the persecuted Jerusalem church. Jerusalem was limited on resources and depended on gifts of wealthy non-residents. A recent famine added to the dilemma. And that was a famine, you'll remember, that was prophesied by one of the prophets in the book of Acts. Christians were put out of homes, robbed of possessions, restrained in occupation, and imprisoned. While they had all things in common, those resources were not without limits. And also in Romans 15, verse 25, Paul describes an attitude, a reality, an expression of spiritual oneness. Now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints, he said. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. Why are they indebted? Why are the Roman believers, why are the Gentiles indebted to Jerusalem? He says, for if the Gentiles had shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister them also in material things. There is a reality of spiritual oneness with our brothers and sisters who have need. So, who are the participants? Who are the people 
who participate in giving to the local church, to Christians at large? Saints? Who else? Who? Who is it that should be participating? A particular demographic? Particular age group? All. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Look at the passage. The giving is all. Giving is universal across the church. Everyone. Everyone, it says there, right, in verse 1 and 2. Everyone should be participating. And in verse 2, it uses the word save. That interesting Greek word is the word from which we derive our word thesaurus, which is not a type of dinosaur. It means a treasury, a treasury of words is how we use the word, right? Thesaurus. What's another name for thesaurus? That's, that's a joke. You, you can laugh later. It's all right. So everyone should be involved with it. Giving is universal. Everyone should be doing this. Everyone should do something every part of the week. And that brings us to the next question, the period. When should it be done? How often and when? And does it matter? First day of every week. Is that important? And if so, why? You always give God first. Always serve God the first, okay? Say what? It's regular. Why is that important? Why is that principle important in terms of the meeting the needs of the saint, edifying the saints, supplying the needs? Why is that critically important? Why does Paul even bring it up? Blessing God back with the first fruits. You have that example. You have that command, that, 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 that profile in the Old Testament. In the old economy, it's there, right? Say it again. <clears throat> yeah, it allows for common, regular distribution of needs as they occur. How many of you get regular paychecks? Can I borrow 20 bucks? No. Uh, <clears throat> You get regular paychecks, right? There's actually a uh, there's actually a stipulation in the law that if you loan a poor man, uh, if you make a loan to a poor man and he gives you his cloak for surety, you are at the end of the day to give him back his cloak so that he can sleep in it. You're not to derive, you know, you're not to deprive a poor man of that comfort. You know, James says that. The wages that have been withheld by you have reached the years of the Lord of Sabaoth. God is concerned for the daily provision and care of his people. If you read Psalm 104, you will see how God regularly distributes food even to animals. Right? So regularity in provision is a reflection of the nature and the character of God. It should be put aside, verse 2. It should be made a priority. Look at what Paul says in verse 2 there. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. No collections should be made when I come. So there's a planning, there's a preparation done ahead of time. So there are no last minute rushes and no giving under compulsion. Did you ever get somebody come up to you and immediately their financial needs becomes known? Right? And you you kind of feel like you're you're on the spot. It's like you you're Sort of saying, okay, what, what do I have? You know, do I, where's my wallet? <laughs> There's that pressure and a compulsion that is upon you. Look at this great quote from Simon Kiestemacher. He says this, Paul teaches the Corinthians to set aside their gifts on the first do, day of the week and to do so regularly. <clears throat> 
a teaching that reflects God's provision for his people. God provides daily needs of the believers and he instructs them to pray for their daily what? Give us this day our daily bread. As God taught the people of Israel to honor him with their wealth and the first fruits of all their crops, which in normal agricultural seasons come on a regular basis because God is faithful. We can rely on him more, even more than the seasons, right? As God taught the people of Israel to honor him with their wealth and the first fruits of all their crops, so he teaches the New Testament people to honor him by giving liberally. God gives faithfully in answer to the prayers of his people. Similarly, his people should regularly offer their gifts to him as their act of worship. And it is just that. It is an act of worship. Next, P, the letter P, the place, the church gathering. That is where the giving should be focused. There are multiple passages in the New Testament talking about the Lord's Day. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. Uh, John 20, verse 19 through 20. They were there the first time they gathered together after the resurrection. It was on the Lord's Day and the Lord blessed them with his presence. And again in verse 26 of John 20 as well. Now, it does not mean that we cannot give in other ways besides to the local fellowship, but the Apostle Paul is very clear in making a priority of the local fellowship. In Acts chapter 4, you'll remember that when they had all things in common and they sold something, where did they bring the money? They brought it and they laid it at the feet of the Apostles, right? Yeah. So there was a central gathering point for a reasonable, organized distribution. Now we get into the meddling part, the proportion. So, how much do we give? How do we decide? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, as he may prosper. Now, we can, we, can, we can talk about this, and we will talk about this. You know we're, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> but I'm reminded of the story of, of uh, three Christian young men who were trying to decide what they were going to give you know, the local church. And the one man said, well, you know, I think we're just going to give a, a percentage. Every week, right off the top, I'm going to give a percentage. And the other fellow said, well, I think that, you know, God knows what my expenses are. So after, after I do my budget, after I pay my expenses, whatever's left over, I'm going to give to the Lord. And the third fellow was listening to this. And he said, you know, guys, I think you're much too legalistic and you're much too worldly in your approach. What I do every week when I get my paycheck is I put it all in cash and I put it in a big bowl. And then I trust the Lord because I will throw that up in the air and whatever God wants, he'll keep. <laughs> I only have two money jokes and that's one of them. Sorry. As he may prosper. So, as he may prosper. So, let me ask you this. Our tithes for today, Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty. 
and see if I do not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. In Matthew 23. Now, some people say that Jesus didn't talk about tithing. Actually, he did. There's a passage here, and I know that different, different, peop different people you know, have different views of this, but he is here lambasting the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So you should not have neglected tithing, but you really need to pay attention to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Leviticus 27 and verse 30 has the first codification of tithing. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, and of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Now once you consider all the laws in the old economy, it comes up to a pretty pretty high percentage. Does anybody have an idea? What percentage? 23%. 23%. If you put all of the tithes, the temple taxes, everything together, 23%. Now, Dave Ramsey, uh, who some of us know and listen to and ascribe to, says tithing is an act of obedience and should be given freely with pure motives. In other words, we give without expecting anything back in return, and it teaches us to be good stewards of what God has given us. No percentage, however, is ever required in the New Testament, but our attitude is extremely important. So we have Proverbs 3 verse 9 saying that we should honor the Lord from our wealth and from the first of all our produce so that our barns will be filled with plenty and our vats will overflow with new wine. And there's this wonderful passage we'll get about in a little bit later here. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12 the readiness is acceptable according to what a person has and not what they do not have. So brother or sister, you may be on limited income. You may want to do so much more. But God accepts the sacrifice. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus saw the woman giving her two small copper coins and said that she gave more than those who gave out of their abundance. So, dear saint, if you are struggling with your income to meet expenses and you have too much month left at the end of the money and you have a beautiful home overlooking the mortgage, then you need to see the compassion and the gentleness of Christ. Calvin has this great quote, and he says, if from slender resources you present some small sum, your disposition is not less esteemed in the sight of God than in the case of a rich man's giving a large sum from his abundance. So we need to keep a biblical P perspective of giving. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, shall we? Because this is a rich passage that really helps us see that. And some of you have just recently been married. Some of you are going to be getting married. And these principles are very helpful as you establish your household budget. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. The ability, the willingness to give is entirely of God's grace. It is favor from God. 
He enables us to give. Have you ever thought of that? That this is not only your spiritual act of worship, but God has graciously given you the provision, the willingness, the ability to do so. Praise God. Look at verse 2. These people that Paul is commending, in affliction their joy and poverty overflowed in wealth of liberality. You can experience that same thing. If you are financially finding yourself in a tight spot, by God's grace, you can have this counterintuitive, contramundum experience of doing things and experiencing things that the world does not expect or commend. And you could be blessed of the Lord. Look at verse 3 there, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3. According to and beyond their ability. Wrap your head around that. That beyond their ability, they gave. They were creative about it. They looked at their expenses. They looked at other treasures that they had and what they could be a blessing to other people about. They gave of their own accord. They were not under external compulsion. They were, they were, nobody was twisting their arm. They did this, and it was joyous. Verse 4, they were begging with much urging for the favor of participation. When was the last time you saw that? When was the last time you experienced that? Please let me do this. Please take my money. What joy, what grace, what trust in Christ did these people have that they were able to do this? Look at verse 5. Not as we expected. This wasn't expected at all. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And here's the key right there. They gave themselves to the Lord. They entrusted themselves to Him and to God, our Heavenly Father, by the will of God. And they entrusted themselves to the apostles, to the leaders that were encouraging them to trust God and to give for the needs of the saints. Look at verse 16. Go down a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 16. Where did this come from? Where did it come from? God who put what? The earnestness, the sincerity, the desire, the drive to do this. God put this into their hearts. And you know, I think about the uh, sixpence, none the richer where a father gives his child money and the child goes out and buys something and gives it to the father as a gift. Look at this passage from First Chronicles. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. I think about... And there are times and there are examples in this, in this body when I see the response to a need whether it's in service or in funds. And I think of Psalm 110, verse 3, that says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. It is, it is, it is a manifestation of God's power that he enables, encourages, and motivates people to do this. And brothers and sisters, you and I can be that 
opportunity for people to see God's power. I think about Exodus 36 and verse 2. Can you read that tiny print? <laughs> for those of you who are listening, I've got Exodus chapter 36, verse 2 through verse 7, where Moses laid out the charge to people and said, hey, we're going to be building this magnificent tabernacle. Donate some materials. And in the end, in verse 5, the workers said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough of the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp the first time ever saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Please stop giving. <laughs> when was the last time you heard that? <laughs> but there's an example of God's power being seen, God's people being enthusiastic about the work. There's also protection in giving, and Paul talks about this. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, I'll tell you what, we're in 2 Corinthians 8. Let's stay there for just a moment. Look at verse 9, 19. Paul talks about those who, because of their reputation, are particularly suitable to be responsible for the distribution and carrying of the gifts. Look at verse 20 and 21. There too is a reflection of Paul's concern that there be integrity in the handling of the money. Now if you were to flip back to 1 Corinthians 16, which is where we began in verse 3, whoever you may approve again. Now, Paul did this because of what someone had said earlier. Not everybody knows the leadership and those who are responsible for the financial stewardship of a church to be able to trust them as to where the money is going and how the money is used. Paul had some people in Corinth who were leery of him. They were not of Paul. They may have been of Apollos or Cephas. All right? <clears throat> they weren't of the Paul camp. They weren't wholeheartedly bought into him. So he was very careful to do that. So we need to be careful and judicious. You know, you hear about people absconding with church funds on an all too frequent basis. And that's a horrible thing. So we put practices in place. Yes, Dan. Yeah, there are those excesses which cause Christians and non-Christians to question the validity, the integrity, you know, and it's a source of mockery. Yeah. And there have always been charlatans, you know, from the earliest days of the church. Even beforehand, Balaam, you know, prophesied against God's people and was tempted to do that 
for money. He eventually ended up leading people away into idolatry and and marrying with people outside of the covenant. So it's, it's not a new thing, but it's something that we have to be very careful about. When we uh, look at people that are going to be handling the finances and the accounting at Faith Bible, you know, we're very careful as to who's going to be involved in that. Even the counting of the money that's donated, it's not being done singularly. There are people who are involved as witnesses. Some of the people in this room are some of those very people who will work together and have a witness as to what's being done, how it's being handled. So we need to be aware that there is protection. There's also a persuasion in giving. Let's stay in 2 Corinthians 8 here. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. Titus made a beginning. And Paul urged that Titus should complete in them this gracious work as well. And in verse 7, Paul is encouraging them. If you look at the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, let me read that for you. I don't have the text here in my, um, my lesson plan. Normally I do. Normally I put my text right in my lesson plan, but since I'm moving around so quickly, I don't have it this time. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. To the point, brothers and sisters, it is not a bad thing to persuade other people to be involved in regular, faithful giving. Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, is encouraging the church at Corinth to do this. And when this happens, we need to be careful to not be too defensive and throw up our guards against those who are, in a godly fashion and in a godly way, providing for the needs of the saints. Now, Paul had those people that were antagonistic to him in Corinth for whatever reason. And he had to struggle against that. And we need to struggle against our own hearts and even a covetousness, which Paul will talk about. In verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about this is not a command, but it's how we prove the earnestness of our love. Paul did not hesitate to say that people can prove their love and, verse 23, we can even boast about other people's donation. Um, I misquoted here. Let's see, verse 8. Others. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 8, verse 24, yeah. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Now, there have been examples of people that we have all seen that have been generous. Um, I'm not going to call out some of the people who have done that, but there are people who have, have the gift of giving and who have the means and the ability to give um, and just be a blessing. Now, it could be points of service, 
It could be in their serving. It could be in their money. But if you had to call out a name or two of someone who you knew who was serving the Lord, who would you boast about? Who would you publicly say, I'm so thankful for X or Y and how they serve the body of Christ, how they honor God, how they show the power of God? Not a bad thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 4, you find a phrase here that I think is important. Otherwise, if the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Now there is a healthy shame. Our culture is extremely shame adverse. Um, but there is a legitimate shame. I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to be ashamed of the Son of Man. I'm not going to be ashamed of the power of God, which is to my salvation. But I'm going to be ashamed of my iniquities. Exodus 43 and verse 10. And you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple and its appearance and plan that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. There is a legitimate and realistic shame that is honoring to God when we sorrow over our sin. So there is a biblical criteria for well-placed shame. Paul here uses the word that our culture rebels against because we refuse as a culture to take responsibility for our sin. So that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. But if you look at 2 Corinthians 9, in verse 5, Paul is wise, he's savvy, he's persuading these people, right? He's saying that they will arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. These people had made a commitment a year ago. So that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. There can be, unfortunately, a stinginess, a, a greed about it that just does not have the right attitude. Look at verse 7. Everyone must do as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. One time there was a Sunday school teacher who was taking, this is my second joke, I'm just, spoiler alert. There was a Sunday school teacher who had three little boys, and she said, here's a dollar for each of the boys. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to come up at the offering time, and I'd like you to quote a Bible verse as you put your dollar into the offering plate. And the boy said, okay. And then the one little boy came up with his dollar, laid it in, and he quoted that verse. God loves a cheerful giver. Praise the Lord. The Sunday school teacher was very pleased. Next little boy came up and said, uh, Malachi says, bring the tithe into the storehouse, and he put down the dollar. And the Sunday school, was, Sunday school teacher was delighted. The third little boy came up, his face was all screwed up, his little hand was clenched, that dollar bill was in there, just tight. And he hesitated, and then he threw his crumpled dollar bill in the plate and said, a fool and his money are soon parted. <laughs> What's your attitude? What's your attitude when you give? What's my attitude? 
Am I convinced that this is a gift of God, that I can participate in making certain that those who preach the Word of God are able to sustain themselves and their family? Am I thankful that the lights are on? Am I thankful that we have a place where we have kiddos that are taken care of? Am I thankful for that? Do I do it reluctantly? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. He rewards those who honor Him. There's a promise of giving. There's a promise of giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, go back there, and look at verse 10. It says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. Your advantage. Who were the first to believe a year ago, not only to do this, but also a desire. Isn't that wonderful? God honors and is pleased with the desire to do this. Now work it out. Now get it through. Giving can be stimulating an example to others. There's a warning and a reward in verse 6. Right? If you look at verse 6 here uh, of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn the page here. Uh, He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endured forever. We're like Christ. There's, we must trust God to be able to do these things. Look at verses 8 through 11 there. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. He's doing that through us. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Isn't that wonderful? There's thanksgiving to God. There is praise to God that goes because of the liberality of God's people. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the fact that saints will be encouraged by your gift when there's a financial need and the church respond or you respond? Well, there's also a problem in giving, isn't there? Let's see here. Proverbs, Proverbs. We're running out of time. As always. All right. There are, there's a problem in giving. And that problem is that healthy shame that I talk about with people who are not ready, who don't plan ahead of time, who don't follow through on their promises. But Paul calls out covetousness. And there's a great quote here by Simon Kiestemacher. A promise made is a debt unpaid. Paul seems to indicate that the people in Corinth were not unwilling to give, but needed help in organizing the work of collecting the funds. Giving that originates in a heart dedicated to God will always result in a blessing. For the gift will bless the recipient, and God will grant his favor to the giver. But giving with a heart ensnared by greed can never receive God's approval, for greed, which is idolatry, has taken God's rightful place. As Paul Tripp says, we are glory stealers. And by having a niggardly, selfish, self-centered, grasping attitude upon our finances, we dishonor God. There's warning. And Jesus gave them warning quite well. Other problems are that 
we advertise our own giving too much. Matthew 6, verses 2 through 4. We also need to remember the per person and perspective of our giving. Let's, as we close, let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at verse 9 here. The one who said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, has, through his Spirit, inspired Paul to write 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. And he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So what is the motivation? What is the person and perspective of our giving? It is Christ himself. It is Christ himself. He gave. He gave us all. He gave to undeserving sinners. Who are we to withhold physical items to our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? He is our person and our perspective for giving. So, in closing, um, I'm going to encourage people to ask questions. To ask these questions. Is it okay to pause my giving during tough financial times? Is that a time for me to grow in trust? Is it okay to claim a tax deduction for our giving? I'm not affiliated with church. I'm not a formal member. Should I still give? Should I give a portion of my income before or after taxes? Should I increase giving when I start earning more money? Good questions. I'm not going to answer them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this portion of your word. Lord, you've shown us the problems that were in Corinth about this. You showed us the problems that are in our own hearts at times. Lord, I pray that we would see the promise that you give to those who are faithful, that we would see the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see the blessings involved, that you would straighten out our thinking where it needs to be straightened out. Lord, we thank you for those that are faithful. And Lord, as we close, we also uh, pray for Ambry and her family as they uh, suffered the loss this week. Lord, I pray that you would be their comfort, that they would be mindful of the hope of those who go into glory trusting in Christ. And Lord, that the service would be a testimony to others that they would think about their mortality and the only hope being in your Son. Thank you for your goodness. Help us to worship you with joy and be able to give from a cheerful heart. We praise you in your Son's name. Amen.